Good morning. Happy Father's Day. My name is David Nelson. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity City Church. Uh, a couple announcements before we get into our time in the Word. First of all, the picnic in the park is going to be taking place next Sunday. Today is obviously a little uh, inclement weather. In addition, it's Father's Day, so uh, we're not starting up this week, but next week we're going to be doing the picnic in the park, so be ready for that. Uh, in addition, our July 4th service is pre-recorded. In fact, it's already been recorded, so two weeks from now, don't come here. It's not that we don't love you, it's just that nobody will be here that day. So um, July 4th will be live streamed from your home. So uh, with that, let's pray for our time together. Father, you are good. Jesus, you are the high priest whose name is love. And Spirit, you are our counselor. Triune God, would you come and dwell with your people here this morning? Would you dwell with me? God, be with us as we read and hear your word taught to us. God, we need you. We have so many fears, so many anxieties, so many griefs that we need a priest who's able to sympathize with every weakness so that we can boldly come to the throne of grace. God be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I follow an account on Twitter called Daily Death Reminder. Um, it's exactly what you think it is. Um, this account tweets out once per day, usually about midnight, the same four words, you will die someday. So every time I scroll through Twitter, I go past that little Grim Reaper logo or whatever it is and be reminded of my own mortality. Now, that sounds a little morbid and depressing and maybe an unhealthy use of social media, but I would guess that in the last year, all of us have thought a little bit more about our own deaths. One of the most striking and horrifying images to me in this last year was seeing the refrigerated trucks back into the hospitals in New York and Texas to store the bodies of those who had died from COVID because the crematoriums couldn't handle the load. I mean, I was shocked by that. There were stories coming out of Italy of household members dying of COVID and their bodies remaining in the houses because morticians didn't know if it was safe to come and collect them. Or perhaps you heard stories about the, the deadly nature of this virus and that people would feel well one day and then just in a few short hours be back in the ICU. Of course, COVID was not the only reminder of death this year. Five years after we watched the blood soak through Philando Castile's shirt on Facebook Live, we saw George Floyd's final moments on earth. And he exclaimed, I can't breathe. The Washington Post put out an article last October that was titled, COVID-19 makes us think about our mortality. Our brains aren't designed for that. And the article features some observations from various professors and uh, one quote from a psychology professor at the University of Arizona that caught my eye. He argued that human beings respond typically to the idea of death in one of three unhealthy ways. The first way we respond is by doing something that make ourselves feel safe, right? We hear about this deadly virus, so we go and we wash our hands, we stay home, we stay away from people. We might completely deny that we're going to die someday. 
We might say something like, well, I'm young and healthy, and so that's not something I have to worry about right now, or COVID's a hoax, and I'm not really worried about that. Or, this professor said, we turn to distraction. So we hear about our death, and we turn on the TV, we have a beer, go for a walk, you know, whatever it is that we need to do. And in an ironic way, the article concludes with this quote that's like, it's kind of meant to be like this comforting, hopeful quote, and it just doesn't come across that way at all because it's actually just another form of denial and disguise. Here's how this article ends. I am an infinitesimal speck of carbon-based dust born in a time and a place not of my own choosing, here for an incredible brief amount of time before my atoms are scattered back into the cosmos. That need not be a terrifying thought. Okay, now contrary to that quote, Death is a terrifying thing. And it's terrifying because we are more than infinitesimal specks of carbon-based dust. We're image bearers of a divine creator with physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual faculties. Death is frightening because it is physical. The Bible says our bodies waste away, and according to most researchers, that process begins at age 25. I'm 26, so my best years are behind me. <laughs> Death can include painful physical trauma, and I have examples, I'm not gonna go through them, you can make it up in your own mind, but it, it can be painful. But it, death is not just a physical reality, it's an emotional one, right? Like, we, we fear death. It's hard to take in the idea that we're gonna die someday, that we're gonna leave our spouses, our kids, our families. To think about all the plans that we had and that they're now just gone. But death's also a mental experience. It, it, it confuses the mind, and so we ask, what, what is death actually like? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there darkness? Does it feel like I'm going to sleep? I don't know what to expect. Will someone come get me? Will there be an angel there? Will Jesus come and get me? Is it going to be my grandmother? I don't know. But above all, death is a spiritual matter, too. In Hebrews 9.27, Sarah just read for us, we saw people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. So death is not the final event of our lives. There's a judgment. There's a reckoning. There's a trial. There's, there's something coming where we will be analyzed about our lives. Are we ready for that? And do we have hope? Is there a way to find hope that the judge's ruling will be in our favor? These are the thoughts and fears that we're enslaved to as people with breath in our lungs. You know, we might not die of COVID, but we will die someday. We might live till we're 120 years old. We might make it out of a terrifying car crash with a sigh of relief. We might even survive cancer. But the death rate is 100% and you will die someday. So how do we ready for ourselves for it? And how do we become a people who are prepared to die well and to respond to the thoughts of it in a healthy way? Last week, if you were with us, we looked at Jesus' ministry to us as a prophet. And this week, I want us to take in his ministry to us as our great high priest because it is only Jesus in his priestly office where we can find comfort in life and in death. But what is that priestly work for us? What does it mean that Jesus is our high 
priest. Well, if you think about priesthood, you might think in your head about the Roman Catholic priesthood, but that's not what the Bible is talking about. It's referring to the Levitical priesthood. These were the, the men who served in God's temple and God's tabernacle, the places where God made his presence known to his people. And the priest there was meant to be there because he was supposed to mediate the new covenant. And a covenant, if you don't know what that word means, it's simply defined as like an agreement, a really strong agreement between two people. And the priest was there as a go-between between God and the people of Israel. Priests were called to minister there. They were meant to carry out the temple service correctly. They were to fulfill strict purity regulations and to pray for the people that they were ministering to. But unlike what we might think, this is not like any other religious job. This is, in fact, one of the most dangerous jobs that you can do. Shortly after the original tabernacle was blessed, Aaron's own sons offered the wrong kind of burnt offering and were killed by the very fire that they offered. In fact, there were several commands the Lord gave to Moses that ended with, so the priest does not die. If you were a priest, you needed to be exact, pinpoint in everything that you do because you went into the very presence of God. Now, when we think about the presence of God, our tendency as a culture to kind of think of it as, well, I'm just in the room with another person, right? Like, we think about maybe that movie from 2003, Bruce Almighty, and we think about God as kind of this Morgan Freeman-like character where he's old and wise-looking, he's got a nice voice, but whose presence is relatively safe to be in, even if we're an evil or messed-up person. But the Bible paints a different picture for us. Moses, who was holier than everyone, had to be shoved into the crevice of a rock, and God had to put his hand over his eyes when Moses was before the Lord's glory. Isaiah the prophet had this grand vision of God and his holiness, and he saw that and he concluded that he was a man of unclean lips who could not be there. My lips are too sinful to be in this room. And Job himself, when he came face to face, well, he came to a whirlwind with God in it, and he could barely utter a word to him. In fact, Job at one point laments about the relationship that he has with God, saying, he's not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. Now listen to this. If only there was someone to mediate between us, somebody to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror wouldn't frighten me anymore. Then I would speak without fear of him, but as it now stands, I cannot. What Job longed for with the eyes of faith, we now see in the priestly work of Jesus. Someone who could mediate between God and man, someone who could bring us together. And what was Jesus' work for us as a priest? Well, Hebrews 9, I think, puts forward three actions of Jesus' priestly work. First of all, he mediates the new covenant. Second, he makes atonement for our sins. And thirdly, and finally, he intercedes for us. So, what does it mean that he mediates the covenant? Go back to, uh, we didn't read this section. I'm going to read it to us. Go back to verse 1 of Hebrews 9. And I'm going to read the first 15 verses to us. Just hang with me. I know it's going to be long. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. 
A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, there was a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, there was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Okay, that was a lot. Um, but as we just looked at, being in God's presence, what this text affirms to us is that it is a big deal. Only one person could go into the innermost part of the sanctuary, and it was behind a curtain. And he couldn't go in there without blood from an animal sacrifice. And so as technical as this section might sound, the main point that the Holy Spirit is trying to convey to us, that Hebrews is trying to convey to us, is that it's giving us a shadow of something that's coming. It's, it's making us long for a, a future reality. Someone who could enter more than once a year. Somebody who offered a better sacrifice and somebody who could stay there for all time. And that's what Jesus does. That's why he came, verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Okay, what's the author of Hebrews getting at here? First, Jesus entered not just into the inner sanctuary, not just into the most holy place, but he went into God's presence. He went into God, he went into heaven, he went to where God is dwelling currently. That's where Jesus went at his ascension, and that's where he is now, mediating this new covenant. And second, Jesus' work in that presence is to mediate a new covenant. Notice that. It's a new covenant. It's not the old covenant. It's a new covenant. He's died to set them free from their sins committed under the first covenant, meaning what? The first covenant here is referring to the covenant that God made 
with Moses, right? So God leads his people out of Egypt. He rescues them. He meets with them on the mountain and he gives Moses and the Israelites all those laws and decrees and statutes, including, you might know, the Ten Commandments. And those commandments reveal to us our wrongdoing. And Jesus died that your transgressions and my transgressions would be atoned for, that we would be forgiven and that we would be invited into a new covenant that's not based on ceremony or tradition or repeated religious works, but one that is based on the grace of God. One where God becomes our God and we become his people based on his free grace alone in the unblemished blood of Jesus. The Father sent the Son so that he would inaugurate and mediate this new covenant. And then they send the Spirit into our hearts and minds that we might have a new cleansed conscience and serve the living God. That's the covenant that Jesus came to bring in, to mediate. But in order for that to happen, someone or something needed to die. Point number two, Christ as priest sacrificed himself for our sins. This is verse 16. In the case of a will, it was necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is enforced only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even when the first covenant was not put into effect without blood, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So what's going on here? Well, when the tabernacle was being constructed, God told Moses to build things that would be used in service to God. Things like the ark or the lampstands or the tables or the wash basins, you know, those sorts of things. And then when they were constructed, God commanded Moses to make a sacrifice for these things, to make an atonement for these things. I mean, this would be like us dragging this pulpit up here and then God saying, I need you to make atonement for this pulpit. That's what's going on here. But, but why would God command that? Well, again, if you're going to be used in the presence of God, whether you are his image bearer or whether you are an inanimate object, then you need to be covered by the blood of a sacrifice. We're right to recognize these things aren't, aren't moral beings. There's nothing sinful about a table or a golden ark or anything like that, but they are created things. They're creaturely, and they're going into the presence of their creator. God is holy and above all and altogether different than us. That's why. And so without this shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There's no atoning for sinful creaturely beings like us. Now, there's a problem with these old covenant sacrifices. And Hebrews points out many of them if you dive into the whole book, but this section in particular highlights just one. It says, it was necessary then for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. 
now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way that a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. So the problem that Hebrews points out here, the problem with purification is that it needed to happen again and again and again. We wouldn't just do this one year, we'd do it next year and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that. There's, there's no stopping point for this. So we need a better, more complete, more permanent sacrifice in order to know that once and for all, our sins have been completely wiped out. That there's no more sin that God sees in us, that they have been canceled and atoned for and that we have been forgiven. And that is what Christ's sacrifice has done for us. And he didn't come with the blood of animals. He didn't come to slay some giant or slay an animal for us. No, he came to slay himself with his own blood. And he didn't have any sin. He gave himself up as innocent, as spotless, freely for you and me. It says he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sins by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once, not to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Why does the sacrifice of Christ hold significance? That was always the question that bothered me growing up. You know, like I'd sit in church and stare at the cross, and I'm like, I know God loves me and he forgives me, but like, why does Jesus need to die? Because there's a judgment. There's a judgment coming. It's appointed for us to die once and after that face judgment. And the sacrifices that we try to make for our sins simply will not do. I can't persuade God to forgive me for lying because I helped my grandma across the street. And moreover, if I try to boast about that, if I try to boast in my good works, then they're not really good works, are they? Because I'm doing them from selfish motivation, for selfish purposes. I need to get something out of doing this. I don't really care about the person I'm helping. And how evil is that? God is a God of justice, and he's a good judge. He cannot be bribed, and he cannot let the guilty go unpunished. And according to Scripture and according to Hebrews, that's us. People who've sinned under the first covenant. But God, not wishing that any should perish, sends His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He sends a high priest to us. He sends Jesus that we might not have to answer for our own sins, but that they might be answered for in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That we might point to the cross and say, He's our sacrifice. And because of him, I get to go free. But mediating and sacrificing, that's not all Jesus does for us as our priest because we also know that he rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven, right? The priestly work of Jesus is also that he ascended for us. What do we do while we wait for him to return? He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. He's interceding for us. He prays for us. He's there, the text says, for us. 
And what does it mean by intercede? Does that mean like God's still angry at me and Jesus is kind of pacifying him toward me? No. What does it mean? It means that when Jesus is interceding for us, he's blessing us. He's sending us divine help. He's enabling us to experience communion and union with him. Perhaps the best picture that we get of Jesus' intercessory work comes from the Gospels, right? Right before Peter betrays Jesus, what happens? Jesus speaks to him and predicts what's coming. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. Satan's going to hit you. He's going to hurt you. And then Jesus says, but I've prayed for you, Simon. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail and that when you have turned back, you would strengthen your brothers. So our strength and faith amidst trials, our renewed repentance and our encouragement of others all come from this mighty intercessory work of Jesus on our behalf. He's praying for you, Trinity City. And not just corporately, but individually as well. God cares about your anxieties. He really does. He cares about your fears and temptations. The priestly work of Jesus is like a bright neon sign in the middle of the dark that says, come and pray about it. One quote that hit me particularly recently came from the uh, keyboard of Tim Keller, and he said this. He says, every single emotion you have should be processed in prayer. Every single one. And we have that availability because of the high priestly intercessory work of Jesus. He's there for us, and he gets us. He became like us. He sympathizes us with us in every weakness, every temptation, and every trial. What do we mean by that? Okay, well, today's Father's Day. Have you ever wondered what happened to Joseph? Like, we read about Joseph in the Gospels, and, you know, we hear about him wanting to divorce Mary quietly when he hears about the pregnancy, and then he's visited by the angel, and then just nothing. And that's because most commentators agree that they believe at some point in Jesus' earthly life, Joseph died. Jesus knows what it's like to have a rough Father's Day. I mean, we didn't have Father's Day back then, but he knows what it's like to lose somebody close to him. He knows what it's like to be without an earthly father, without an earthly father figure. He knew that sort of grief. He knew what it was like as a human being to be hungry and lonely and tired. He knows what it's like when Satan is just yapping in your ear some sort of falsehood or twisted scripture to tear us down or depress us. He knows that, and he also tasted the realities of injustice. Jesus knew what it was like to be hated without a cause. He knew what it was like to have the worst automatically assumed about him. People would see him eat and they'd say, well, he's just a glutton. Or if they saw him drink anything, they'd say, he's a drunkard. He knew what it was like to be rejected by the temple leaders who were supposed to be there to minister on behalf of the people. He knew what it was like to be manipulated by those closest to us with the pretend kindness of Judas. Jesus felt like it, what it was like to be falsely accused of something he didn't do, wrongly convicted, led around in chains, and suffer at the hands of a bloodthirsty mob full of evil people. Yesterday was Juneteenth, 
a day where we celebrate the end of slavery in the United States. And yet racism is so, so prevalent in this country and in our hearts. Prejudice still enslaves so many of us. And listen, I am, I'm white. I, I don't know what it's like to be a person of color in America. I have no idea. But if you're here this morning struggling because you feel alone and isolated, misunderstood in a cold world that rejects you, then let a mighty Savior comfort you this morning because He knows exactly how you feel. He took the lashes on His back and the unjust beatings and the spitting and the mockery at the hands of soldiers and an angry mob. As the old spiritual put it, sometimes I'm standing crying, tears running down my face. I cry to the Lord, have mercy, help me run this race. Oh Lord, I have so many trials, so many pains and woes. I'm asking for faith and comfort. Lord, help me, help me carry this load. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Well, no, nobody knows but Jesus. Go to him. He's ready to listen and to help. And we should also recognize that if Jesus clothed himself, he put on flesh and blood to better empathize with our weaknesses, then our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ is to do the same. To clothe ourselves in humility and seek to understand one another. To ask legitimate, heart-searching questions. What am I blind to? Neighbor, how can I love you well? What do you need me to know? What should I be learning about? Y'all, the author of, or the defining marks of Christians ought to be a spirit of empathy, of mercy that says I'm here to help, and a spirit of faithfulness that says I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus is not going anywhere this morning either. Though I'd love it if right now, the second coming came and he came and he got up all of his people. But until that day comes, know that Jesus is your great high priest who right now is interceding for you in the presence of God. So let's close this with a question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? May your answer forever be that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be afraid of death because when we die someday, our faithful Savior and High Priest will take us to be with him forever. And for the non-Christian in this room, it's okay to admit that you're afraid to die. You don't have to distract yourself or deny it or try to cover it up. Jesus knows you're afraid of death and he's pleading with you today to come under his priesthood, to be reconciled to him, to repent and trust him, to trust in the one who took away the power of death.
May you do that this morning. I'm going to pray for our time as we close. Jesus, you are our great high priest who sympathizes with every weakness, tempted as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, with confidence, we can come and boldly approach the throne of grace, that we can receive grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Jesus, be with struggling hearts this morning. Remind them of your tenderness and faithfulness toward them, that you're ready to help. God, help us as we struggle about on this path of life and comfort us along the way until our deaths. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.